Hello and welcome to the Nursing Standard podcast. My name is Christine Walker, editor of one of RCNI's specialist journals, Nursing Children and Young People. Today we're going to talk about how nurses caring for seriously ill and dying patients are affected. We'll look at the very particular painful experiences of nurses who face intense sorrow and distress at the loss of a child they have nursed, possibly over a long period of time, and the emotional toll that this can take. But mindful that many of you listening will be working with older patients in many different settings and in different fields of practice who will have had similar experiences, we will broaden the discussion to nursing older patients and hopefully offer some advice on coping with loss and bereavement to help you in your practice. With me to discuss these issues are Alice Nugent, a psychotherapist at Dublin Business School, and Agnes Higgins, Professor of Mental Health in the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Trinity College Dublin. They were two of the authors of a recently published qualitative study in nursing children and young people on nurses' experiences of managing vulnerability when working with seriously ill children. Welcome, Alice and Agnes. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Well, let's start at the beginning. Alice, can you begin by outlining the main findings of your research? Thanks, Chris, for inviting us on to discuss our research. My reason for pursuing this particular research was, as a psychotherapist, I have to undertake compulsory supervision at least once a month to ensure that my work is not having an adverse effect on me personally. This made me think back to time that I spent in a children's hospital with my own child, and I wondered how on earth the staff, in particular the nurses, were affected by their work and whether they had any compulsory supervision or access to any other formal support. Having done the research, the data revealed three main themes. The first theme to emerge was an overwhelming sense of the participants being emotionally full, as their emotions were very close to the surface during the interviews, offering evidence that the experiences of loss that they described had yet to be fully processed and their grief remained unresolved. The second theme was the participants' ability to navigate the rules of grief imposed either explicitly or implicitly by the hospital. An example of this is not being allowed to contact parents to find out how they are coping after their child has died, bearing in mind some of these children have been on the ward for several years and the nurses have long-standing relationships with the families. Another example of this is nurses believing that seeking support will lead to managers judging them unfavourably. These examples demonstrate a disconnect between the organisation and the nurses. Although the organisation is trying to help and support them, they haven't actually sat down and discussed how this might best be done. These results in, in increased anxiety and nurses struggling to navigate their grief within the rules of the organisation. My last theme was prism of time, which refers to a sense of busyness. Obviously, nurses have never been busier, but this was more of an energetic sense of busyness, where it was being used by the nurses to avoid having to confront uncomfortable feelings or emotions that underlie the work of caring for unwell or dying patients. There was a sense that if they stopped for a moment, 
their world might just come crashing in around them. Thank you, Alice. That was uh, that was very interesting as an outline of, of what you found. You had some very powerful comments from some of the nurses that you interviewed. One referred to um, a child that they had nursed over a long period and talk, they talked about the loss being devastating, something that they had uh, she had never got over and still cries about it. Now, of course, losing a child is against the natural order of things for a uh, course for parents, for carers and for health professionals. But some of the nurses that you spoke to also reported having similar harrowing emotional feelings, despite not feeling particularly attached to the child. Why do you think this is, Alice? I think this is due to unresolved grief. Um, and this can be better explained by the concepts of disenfranchised grief or self-disenfranchised grief. Disenfranchised grief refers to when a nurse, in this case, suffers a loss, but they are not permitted a right to grieve. Therefore, although the nurse experiences grief, that grief is not recognised by the people around them, either personally or in a work capacity. This results in the nurse's potential need for social support and sympathy or their need for time off work being negated. Self-disenfranchised grief refers to where the nurse themselves doesn't believe they have a right to grieve due to not being a family member or a friend of the family, even though they may have known that child for a large proportion of the child's life. This cumulative effect of loss where emotions are continually denied can eventually result in vicarious trauma. Um, vicarious trauma is when negative emotions develop from repeated exposure to other people's trauma. And nurses, as you mentioned before, Chris, will have what they see as a completely disproportionate reaction to the loss of a child that they were not particularly attached to. Thank you for that. But we know that uh, nurses need to remain professional and put the patient first. But once a shift is over, then the individual starts to reflect and process their experiences. Now, there's so much pressure in healthcare today. You refer to it in the research as the general busyness of healthcare. Alice, what, what do you mean by the general busyness of healthcare? You touched on it a bit earlier, but can you just say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, there's no denying how busy the healthcare sector is, and particularly in the area of nursing, where there continue to be staff shortages and changes in patient acuity. These issues contribute, contribute to a nurse's workload and lack of time, but there is also an energetic sense that busy, busyness is being used energetically as a form of defence to deny or detach from difficult feelings and emotions linked to their unresolved grief. This was highlighted in all my interviews when carrying out this research, as all the participants arrived saying they were really too busy to do the interview. But within five minutes of being in the room with me, all bar one was in tears. Also, the interviews all went on for much longer than I think I was expecting and certainly they were expecting. Um, as once they started talking, it seemed like they really didn't want to stop. Um, so the impact of this is that even though the organisation provides informal debriefing sessions, and although the nurses themselves recognise their need for support, 
they were nearly always too busy to go to the sessions. The impact of this is a vicious circle where both the organization and the nurses both suffer as there is increased likelihood of compassion fatigue and burnout, leading to further issues with staff shortages and increases in workload. Thank you, Alice. Now we've discussed the particular issues in the research of, of nursing seriously ill children and how vulnerable this can make nurses. But of course, it's not just nursing children that can elicit such vulnerable feelings in the nurse. Similar experiences can be felt by those nursing older people. One of the issues you discuss is the issue of unresolved grief and how it can turn to burnout and compassion fatigue, which is obviously pertinent at the moment with the impact of staff shortages and the relentless pressures that nurses are under. And of course, the subsequent emotional impact of having worked through the COVID-19 pandemic. Agnes, let's bring you in here and let's talk a little bit more about COVID-19 and the impact that it's had on, on nurses and the pressures that nurses have, have been under and are still under. Certainly, Chris, you know, COVID-19 pandemic has had a significant impact on the mental health and well-being of nurses worldwide. While nurses, like other frontline healthcare workers, worked tirelessly during the pandemic, they shouldered enormous levels of emotional burden while they were trying to navigate exceptional levels of uncertainty. And this dedication and sense of duty came with a cost. You know, we are now seeing a growing body of research in this area that's clearly pointing to high rates of anxiety, depression, sleep problems, subjective feelings of distress, compassion fatigue and burnout. Some of these I suppose, challenges have arisen because of people being exposed to the infection itself, but also in terms of the trauma that they experienced from worrying about being infected, infecting you know, uh, patients, infecting maybe vulnerable family members, to the trauma that they experienced in terms of trying to replace family members uh, during periods, periods of isolation and having to communicate, you know, constantly maybe bad news to family members over the phone. So I suppose a lot of this not has just compounded, I suppose, some of them, the moral stress that nurses feel on uh, an everyday uh, situation when they can't deliver care according to their values, especially, you know, in times of staff shortage. And I suppose on top of that, nurses were deprived of some of the normal uh, caring strategies that they would use to comfort people during the dying process, like things like simple things like holding somebody's hand, uh, being able to comfort them by, by being physically close, to also having the comfort of knowing that people uh, maybe died with being surrounded by their family members. And that was often uh, nurses were deprived of those. And I suppose I was thinking about this more preparing for this session, that these are some of the strategies that we as nurses would often use to self-soothe ourselves when somebody has died. We kind of we often say, you know, well, I was there. I was able to give good quality care. I was able to hold somebody's hand. The family members were there. And I suppose they, that some of those normal self-soothing strategies nurses didn't have. So I suppose aside from the COVID, I think, you know, we need to be conscious that nurses, irrespective of where they work, 
are exposed to very painful and traumatic experiences every day, whether they are working with older people, whether they're working in the emergency department, whether they're working with people in a mental health facility, they may be exposed to somebody you know, and, and death through somebody dying through suicide or if they're supporting people with maybe an intellectual disability in the community setting. So I don't think the findings of the study are new, just unique to children's uh, nurses. I think they are certainly transferable to all nurses in terms of uh, to all nurses who are working in an environment of high stress without support. I think that that's the, 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 the core piece that if, if we if nurses aren't uh, experiencing support, then the, what ha happens is that there, there is a development of a certain level of emotional numbness. We put up defence mechanisms and strategies to, to defend ourselves from the pain. And it's that which will lead to the compassion fatigue and the burnout. Uh, thank you, Agnes. Uh, what did you discover from the research that you did about how nurses can learn to cope with their experiences? And do you have any tips for listeners? I suppose one of the main things that we see from the study is how without self-care, as I said, and support, practitioners will suppress dis and discount their own grief and they'll become overwhelmed by um, the grief or feel a sense of shame about seeking help. So in terms of what is it that we can do at an individual level and, uh, and I suppose at an organisational level, but at an individual level, as one of the, you know, as the old adage goes, you can't pour from an empty cup. So if we need, if we neglect to keep filling our own cup through proper self-care, we compromise our ability to manage our emotions, to manage our reactions, as well as our ability to be present to and listen to and empathise with the people we care with and for every day. And I suppose that's, you know, our ability as nurses and our desire to, be, to connect with people that we care for every day is one of maybe the hallmarks of quality nursing. So I suppose for us as individuals and as nurses, we need, I suppose, first give ourselves permission to experience the pain and experience the, the loss and not deny it or kind of try to control it or suppress it, but to feel it, to name it and to learn how to understand where these emotions come from and how they impact us uh, in an everyday context. So in other words, it's about learning about emotions and it's about learning about emotional literacy and it's learning how to contain our emotions rather than control or suppress them. So I suppose the first thing in learning how to contain our emotions is about being compassionate to ourselves. Uh, and there's a lot spoken about and written about empathy and empathetic understanding in nursing. Um, and I suppose I'm a firm believer that before we can be empathetic and compassionate with another, we need to be compassionate with ourselves and that we need to give ourselves one permission to feel the, the distress um, and also give ourselves space to process it and to to deal with it. And sometimes that space is about finding space where we can articulate with others how we feel. But we need to be able to talk to somebody, to another person about how we feel. That person needs to be able to hear our pain and to witness and give witness to the, the, the 
pain that we are feeling without being coming overwhelmed themselves. So I suppose that brings us, you know, that a lot of the times we talk as nurses about the importance of the peer group as a source of support and the power of the peer group in all contexts of life is being increasingly understood. But I suppose the power of the peer group is premised on the fact that the, the peer is able to hear another pain, person's painful story and help them to work through it. But if I am a nurse, as a nurse, am I myself am more overwhelmed by my own emotions. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to hear another clinician's uh, pain at that time. Or I may, again, in a circular way, try to protect myself from hearing another nurse's emotions and close down, I suppose, that conversation. Um, so that's why I think that while the power of the peer group is important, it's not the only strategy. You know, nurses maybe need to engage in other strategies you know, that are that are developed from the organization, whether they be clinical supervision, peer debriefing. Um, but to do that, and I suppose to engage uh, either with the peer group or to engage with uh, clinical supervision, we need as, as a group to change a particular narrative sometimes that we have in our own heads. And that narrative, we, we saw it in the study where people talked about, you know, not having time to attend, uh, that, you know, that we were, they were too busy to attend. So I think that we need to start to change that narrative and we need to give ourselves permission to engage in self-care and to recognise that, that it's an important part of our ongoing professional development. I often think that we would never say that we didn't have time to go to engage in education and professional development on other aspects of practice, because we would see that as, as a dereliction of duty. But we often use, uh, you know, the, the fact that we don't have time as a reason for not attending supervision uh, or not engaging with, with peer work, support work. So I think that's the first piece that we need to think about. And I think that, you know, some people might say that go as far to say that it's an ethical imperative for us as, as nurses working on the front line um, to engage in ongoing um, self-care. Because without it, there is a, a risk and we, we see it in the studies where people become either overwhelmed or emotionally numbed to other people's uh, pain and distress. And that that in itself then will stop us from providing, you know, the highest possible standard of care. So I think that, that there is a change in the narrative that needs to happen in our own heads as nurses. So I think that's pieces within the organisation, I think. And of course, the organisation certainly has a role to play here in terms of creating a context for some of this to happen. But outside of the professional practice as, as nurses, we also need to find other activities uh, to replenish and rejuvenate our spirits. Um, in mental health, we often talk about, you know, people having a wellness plan. And I suppose as nurses, we nearly need a wellness plan for ourselves, you know, to look at what are the strategies that we use on a day to day basis that maintains our mental and physical health. You know, and they are very unique to people. You know, for some people, it may be, you know, meditation, it may be yoga, it may be journaling. For other people, it may be sport, maybe a, a walk in the park. So I think that's very, very unique to the individual. So 
for nurses, I think what we, we want to say is on an ongoing basis, how do we maintain our, our mental health and well-being? And I suppose and appreciate, you know, that that is such an important part of our the care and the quality of care that we provide. OK, Agnes, well, thank you so much for some important advice there. And if we're all able to, uh, to to do all of that and take your advice, we'd never have any problems. But it's obviously not as simple as that. But thank you so much for, for your advice there. That's that's fascinating. I just go back to Alice here because Agnes did touch upon this um, just now, but she was talking about we're talking about nurses learning to cope and have strategies to cope on their own with the demands of the role that they do. But what about the um, uh, the issue of employers and how employers have a, a role to play here? Yeah, I mean, I think it is absolutely crucial that healthcare organisations do more to recognise and support nurses' emotional needs. Clinical supervision has been recognised in other fields, for example, in my own field of psychotherapy, as being an emotionally safe space that in turn promotes critical reflection and has a positive impact on clinicians' emotional well-being, which is vital for the better provision of care. I think it would be beneficial if supervision for nurses was made compulsory. This would assist and support them in understanding the difficult emotions around their work and make them feel better supported through their times of grief. And this would ultimately lead to improvements in their emotional well-being. Um, I think compulsory might seem harsh when nurses are already so time poor, but speaking from experience, I don't think you realise how much you need these sessions until you go and then it becomes an invaluable part of your self-care which makes both your work and home life so much more manageable. There are also obvious benefits for the organisation as there would be a decrease in nurses leaving the profession due to vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue and burnout, which has been a theme through, or these have been themes throughout the, um, our chat today. Um, there are other ways of supporting nurses, such as formalised debriefing sessions. But again, if these sessions are not made compulsory, I believe the take-up will be poor due to nurses' busy work and personal commitments. Educators also must be aware of strategies that nurses use to avoid engaging with painful emotional experiences, which affect their ability to engage with children and families in an empathetic and supportive way. As one nurse said, which I think sums it up really well, is the nature of our work makes the extraordinary become ordinary. The effect our work has on us is extraordinary and we need to learn about that. OK, well, lovely. Thank you very much, um, Alice and Agnes, for taking part in the podcast today. It's been a fascinating discussion on a very deep and difficult topic. Um, thank you to you, the listener. Um, I hope we've provided food for thought. Um, always be aware that you're not um, on your own. And hopefully we've provided you some with some tips on how to deal with emotional trauma. Thank you.
And thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that all the resources connected with this episode of the show can be found at rcni.com forward slash podcast, where you can also catch up on any episodes you may have missed or simply want to play back. And we greatly appreciate any feedback, so please do rate or review us on Apple or Spotify podcasts, which will also help other people to find us. I hope you enjoyed the show.